0: Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm really excited to have Bruce Hornsby here today because for a variety of reasons, I've been listening to your music since your first album. I know it well. And, uh, but, but I'm not sure you're aware that we have a few points of contact in our histories. Do you know?
1: Well, I'm not surprised. I've certainly met your dad. It's a little hazy to me. It's back in the mists of maybe the late eighties or early nineties, but I, I, I know I was in a room with him hanging out with Charles. This isn't even but, better. But, I mean,
0: that's the best one for me personally. But I think you don't know that your niece. Uh, well, no, I know. No, no, I know.
1: Ah, <laughs> that, great. Hey, no. Bruce. Hey, Emily. Look, I figured, Brian, that the only reason I was on this was that, that e- Emily insisted. Oh, you got to get my uncle or I quit. So. He, he didn't want to do it. <laughs>
0: well, you know what's funny well, is I cleared it, but I did clear I it.
1: That's exactly how. That's the only reason I'm here is she, she got me on the show.
0: For the listeners, I'm really glad to do this because Emily Hornsby, Emily is a writer-producer and an enormously valuable part of our creative team. She's written so many billions episodes and super pumped and produces the shows. And we've worked together like oh, more than five years of just working so closely together. And Bruce, everything I've heard about you guys in the family, I won't... Spill secrets, but the big jam sessions sound in- incredible to me.
1: Well, now I'm not much. I don't think I'm not partaking of the big jam sessions, uh, family jam sessions. I'm not really around for that. And, you know, I, I, it's not really my thing to go strap on a guitar and play uh, Neil Young songs. I, I'm, I used to do that. I'm not against it at all. I just don't, it's not, it's not sort of my go to move anymore. They seem to have a good
0: time doing it. We sure do. Yeah, now, this now, if is, playing,
1: yeah. If Emily was playing Emily was playing drums. Mm-hmm. You know, Emily, when she gets down a drum set, she means it. I mean, she's going after it. And so I uh, I'm in for uh, that that's that's the jam session that I'd say, okay, I'm I'm sh- I'm coming to that one. Right, good. Uh, there, so, anytime.
0: So. There you go. All right, good. <laughs> well, I had
1: to
0: say hey. I had, yeah, Emily had to come in and say hey. Yes,
1: right. it's Chris. It's great. It's so fun. I, I, I didn't expect it, but I wasn't that surprised. Again, I don't know the inner workings. I don't know how closely you guys work together, but clearly it is a very close working we work. We worked very close for, together. Several years. So it's fantastic. Right. Uh, right. I have a She's question. She's going back though, to work. Go ahead. Yeah. The, uh, so, okay. So I don't know Billions. I'm going to binge watch it. I, I mean, I know of it. Paul Giamatti. I've, I've loved him since American Splendor, for God's sake, you know. Uh, but someone told me that there's a Grateful Dead, some, some obscure Grateful Dead references, i.e., Steve Parrish, Jerry Garcia's longtime minder uh, is, is referenced in Billions. And I'm going, you know, well, that's fantastic because who the hell would know that's so inside. So where's that coming? From? That that's okay. that's yeah, that's going to come true. from
0: me. That that particular okay. reference
1: hard for that one Absolutely. not to come from Absolutely. me.
0: I don't know whose episode. <laughs> well, that was, but, I,
1: I, I yeah. wondered about it because the fr- my friend. Well, it was one of my managers, Kevin Monty, up in Charlottesville red light. And he mentioned this. And he said, oh, Emily. Emily got some great Grateful Dead references. And I said to him in reply, I said, well, I'm not sure that's Emily. I've never gotten the sense that she was really that enamored with all that. Maybe she is. I just never got it. But I'd be surprised. So it's you, Brian. You're the you're the guy slipping in the dead references. OK, I I
0: would say there were two dead things that have been on the show or three. I mean, Levine, my my creative partner and lifelong best friend. And uh, he saw the dead with Jerry. I never I never saw the dead with Jerry, though Uh, I, man, I love Jerry Garcia and that music, but I was really swept away by the, the, the long documentary, that Amazon five part documentary, long, strange trip. And I really watched it twice all the way through and the Paris stories killed me. So like, you know how it is as a writer, you know how it is as a writer, you carry stuff, you file stuff away. You're not even sure you're going to use it, right? It, it, all these, yeah. Bruce. You must have that happen for you, and well, I mean,
1: of course, as a songwriter, all the time. Yeah, and I'll, you don't even know I'll when it's going to. The blue, yeah. yeah, right. It's a, you never know, That's and it right. could be
0: a figure yeah. too, can it? Like you're walking down the street and a figure comes into your head, and it services in yeah. some gig, yeah. and then suddenly it ends up on some record. You know, you don't know why.
1: Well, right. For me, I'm a, pretty much I'm an improviser as a musician. If you come to see our band, yeah, good luck hearing a. A, a replication of the original it never happens you know i'm just not that's maybe why i was a kindred spirit with the grateful dead because they had the same approach so i'm always looking for the, for the new and so if i hear a, some phrase or some some um, some bit of a lyric i'll I, my life is littered with pages of crap you know writing down this and this is just anyway it's just there's there's so much of this and that's that's my life. I've always, am yeah. always ready to receive, and I'm so, so I'll write things down. But usually, when I sit down lately, well, this is a different thing. I, then it kind of all comes to me in a strange way. I'll, I'll amass all this knowledge about a certain crazy topic, like cryogenics, for instance. Yes. Okay, and and then, uh, or, or read a great book, Don DeLillo, Zero K. I sort of grokked a lot from that. But uh, so, I'll get all this information and sort of amass mass put it together, and then listen to a, a, a track, and then it all will kind of come forth because I've sort of done the homework. I'm in that uh, milieu, sort of. So that's a, that. That all. I mean, it's works. the same. But, don't, but what f- you're I'd saying is s- true.
0: Similar. Like yes, you're you're storing when we're the thing that we do, Emily and I. Yeah, you're storing up this in this. You're not. I mean, I'm not even as consciously aware all the time of why I'm saving something or why it like sticks. But like that Steve Parr story, that phrase about the boss is the, you know, the situation is the boss that just stuck with me and was like, yeah, that will work. I'm always pulling weird phrases or ideas. I could be reading. The other day I was reading a Werner Herzog book and like the way he speaks about he and he told some story about some really odd sect of a religion. And I just tore the page or I took a picture and then I sent it to like our staff and I said, Put this on a board for me. I don't know when I'm going to need it, but I'm going to need it and do some research on it. So then they'll research it and shade it so I have it. And then it just exists so I can use it. Who knows when? And then the deal, the other thing. And then Emily's going to walk out of here and we're going to talk about you. But the other thing was um, we used Jerry Garcia's version of the deal uh, to end uh, uh, an episode last season. And that's one of those things where for years Dave and I had planned on it. But could never find the right spot, and then suddenly it was like we put it in the script. Like we knew the deal is what's going to play to end this season, and it ends a season, and it's really great. And it was great hearing Deadheads respond to using that version of that song. You know,
1: well for the grateful for the Deadheads, the true devotees, those songs are the hymns of their lives. It's it's, it's religion to them, seriously. But but it's totally earned. It's totally deserved because so many of those. Great, not the not the songs like "Deal," which is more of a jam and kind of shuffle tune, but the you know, the Wharf Rats and "Broke Down Palace" and "Black Muddy River" and just keep going on and on. Uh, the great ballads that t- sound like they could have been written a hundred years ago. Sound like old, deep in the well folk music. Those songs, I get chills thinking about those songs, and I used to get chills playing them, playing the songs with them, and uh, so. Right, there's no, no surprise that you get a lot of a response because it's a deep relationship they
0: have. When I hear something like Friend of the Devil, it's hard for me, I mean, forget Box of Rain, that Phil writes one song and it's just one of the best songs in the whole pop music canon of ever, right? I mean, who, how that happens, who the fuck knows? Yeah. But you know, Friend of the Devil, that could have been a Robert John, I mean, that sounds like all the songs that Dylan put on Good As I've Been To You, you know what I mean? It's like they feel like they've been around forever, that song feels like it's been around forever.
1: That's what I think, and so, like I say, these these songs are the hymns of of their lives, and and so that's why they can continue to come back. It's like going to church for them. They can con- continue to hear old hundreds, you know, the old yeah, hymn, of
0: course, <laughs> uh,
1: forever, because there's just something timeless and something with such gravitas to me. So,
0: well, it's interesting you uh, to talk about that. that. All right, thanks, all right. Emily.
1: Good to see you, Uncle Bruce. Uncle Bruce, say goodbye to your bug- knees.
0: <laughs> Maybe you guys will actually jam. Now, again, since you were kids. Um, Emily's well,
1: playing drums, and I'm in,
0: yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, she's a very good drummer. She's a real drummer. Yeah, I've heard yeah. the stuff. <laughs> so, Bruce, man, we met. I, I know, you, yeah, there's no way you would connect okay, this. Okay, tell, tell me. Well, the there's no way you'd connect it, yeah. but I, I, I wanted to start here because... I co-produced an album with Don Gaiman in 1991 or 90, and you came in and played on a song for us. It was a kid named Michael Michael McDermott. And a yes, song called I'm, Fool's I'm Avenue. I'm, you came in late at night, and we hung out kind of all night long, and, and you played on a couple tracks, uh, but Fool's Avenue was the main thing. And, and you know, I just remember, like, I was 22 years old or 23 years old producing this date, and, um, man, you were so cool, and, and you seemed so into just even though you were at that time, you know, a big star, you seemed so into being a working musician and coming in and playing on a track and just being one of the guys. And was that important to you to hold on to that as your career took off? Did you enjoy coming in and playing on, on dates? You didn't need the session, though. So did, was that a thing that you just dug doing?
1: Well, I got the feeling... Uh, first wasn't Michael McDermott from Chicago?
0: Yes, correct, correct.
1: That's something that I remember about young Michael and Don Gaiman is one of the great people, the best I love that him. I've ever known yeah. in music. I regret that we only made the one record together. I moved back, but we have over here in my studio. That's 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 what we call the Don Gaiman window. Love it. Okay, because we we were making the record with Don, but I was getting ready to move back to Virginia, and I was design we're designing the studio and don said whatever you do don't make it this cave have have a window so you actually have a perspective on what you're doing that 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 night doesn't turn into day and you don't notice it you know so uh so that's yeah the don game he 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 resides right there in our hearts uh, over there so but anyway you're asking me about playing on sessions well my standard joke about it became because for a a good while there I played on a ton of people ton of records but I never would charge anybody because it was it was not it was not how I made my living so I said well I don't need to charge you know one session you know 300 bucks I've been very fortunate here I've got this other thing going on very nicely and so so I start, I started thinking that well, maybe they just call me because they know I'm a cheap date. You know, I'm, that's I'm, hilarious. I'm, I'm willing. I'm willing to just come in for nothing, and I and I did that. So uh, Michael McDermott, I remember it well. And I, if you see Don Gaiman, give him my undying love and. Dimension. I will.
0: But did you like? So, but the, I guess what I the question is: I what I remember was you were you were super focused. You weren't phoning it in in any way. It was clear. In that oh, yeah. for yeah. that couple of hours that was the most important thing in the world to you was was trying to get this song right and and serve the producers and the artist and the song. And it seemed to me I remember it very keenly Bruce cuz I was a kid, you know, so you really remember, oh, Bruce Hornsby's coming in. And you yeah. know, yeah. Bruce Hornsby come in, well, I didn't know you could come in with an attitude about it or with sunglasses, you know. And yeah. and but but it was the opposite of that. It was really beautiful. What did you dig about doing that stuff? Was it just you like getting into these different worlds of music or you liked connecting? What, what, what attracted you to, that, to, to doing that, that work uh, back then?
1: Well, I said no a lot. I would only do it if I was interested in, in the music or if someone like Don Gaiman asked me to do it. Sure. I would do it for him because I love him. Uh, so, it, So the music sometimes was secondary. I hoped... To like the music, but some often I would often I would come in and and not know the music at all. I played on a Warren Zevon record in the mid-90s, and and he he I didn't know the music at all, but I come in and he says, Okay, we've got this song called Monkey Wash, Donkey Rinse. <laughs> and I want you to play, play accordion on it. It's kind of a Cajun feeling. It has kind of a Cajun feeling. So and then so I did that. It was great. I love the record. If you listen to it, I think you'd quite like the uh, the song. It's not well known, but it's a, it's a great Zevon song. And then he had had me play on a song called Piano Fighter, but still on a chord. And he said, oh, I just love the fact that I've got a song called Piano Fighter and Bruce Hornsby's on it, not playing the piano. That sounds so, perverse in a very Warren
0: Zevon kind of a contrarian, way. That's great.
1: The contrarian, Mr. Zevon. So... I did it. I did it a lot. You're asking why I did it. I, again, I, I've kind of answered it, in kind of a.
0: Yeah, you have. Uh, did you kind a uh,
1: dying fashion? I'd do it for friends, you know, or if I, I'd do it if I loved the artist. I got to work with amazing people. I could just drop names for the next many minutes of the sort of iconic people who called me to work for them. It was absolutely beautiful, uh, but after a while, I got burnt out on it because. Well, after a while, I started getting—I get musically restless, and I don't want to do the same thing. Oh, so sure. I'm going in there looking to uh, add a little adventure to something who I, that I think is fairly yes. quotidian. You know, as yes. I'm hearing this song, I'm thinking, "Wow, this is very normal." You know, and so let me try to steer it in a way that I feel like. might might add a little punch to it or a little interest. And but then they they would go back and say, come back over the talk back and say, well, yeah, that's pretty good. But could you basically they met, can you rein it in and place something really straight? And so after the session, I would very nicely but firmly say, you know what, guys, to be honest, you could have gotten anybody to do what you just had me do. And so uh maybe you don't have to i'm good anyway stop doing it uh after no as a
0: as a a screenwriter i completely understand that like because sometimes when they would bring you in what you have is your voice really all we have is our voice and if they but then if what they want isn't the voice that you have but instead they just want you to use your intellect it's kind of robbing you of your point of view of like the thing that makes you the particular artist that you are. And you go, well, then you could have brought anyone in,
1: right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So there's a certain way I've developed through the years. As I was coming up, my influencers are all about people who gave me chills. And my, I, people ask me for years, uh, how would you describe your piano playing? We always know it's you, but how and, and why is that? Said, well, it's a certain way of voicing chords. Some people would play a C chord a certain way. I played a different way. And I call it Bill Evans Meets the Hymn book. Bill Evans meaning the great jazz I know, pianist, Of course. Who basically uh reharmed. He basically found his own completely unique way of playing the great American songbook on a chord voicing level, basically coming from the French Impressionists, Ravel, WC, mostly Ravel. If you hear Ravel's music and you know Bill Evans, you go, OK, I see, hear where those voicings are coming from. So Bill Evans meets the hymn book. And I always loved the, the movement of the hymns, the, 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 the thirds in the bass, the figured bass, the moving bass lines uh, just would give me chills. So so I I've called my style so, uh, Bill Evans meets the hymn book. And that's and, and so that that's that's what they wanted and sometimes but i would give them that and they would go yeah I would like a little more straight I, so anyway that's, yeah they'd that's, want
0: just uh, a poppy version of leon russell and that's not gonna that if that's not what you're coming in to do for you they could there's a lot of guys yeah. who can play a shuffle right so you
1: know you know i i leon was one of my heroes of course fans, pressing a button there there with me so i thought i could do a pretty good leon imitation a whole lot of piano players have tried and, and probably do it very well i thought i could do a a really good imitation until i started hanging with him personally that's awesome and sat at the the foot of the feet of the master and watched it and i went oh okay but i could easily fairly easily grok what he was doing by watching him and and but so it was a whole different thing so now i can really do oh of course this is right
0: this is fascinating though what you're talking about here man about improvisation and style and 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 voice and sort of like even when you're there to play piano, personal expression. Because I'm, uh, I think we might have talked about this a little when we met back then. But again, bigger to me than than you at the time. But I'm a lifelong basketball junkie. Like uh, it's an enormous, <laughs> enormous part of my existence. You know, I played, I played my whole life. Um, I played until I was in my 40s and I still shoot sometimes. Yeah, I played, I wasn't as good as you, but I played varsity for a team that was eighth in the state. I was like the worst guy on the team, but I was on the team. I was terrible compared to them, but I was on the team. You, know.
1: you were a role player on a really good team.
0: Yeah, I'm a bad player on a good team. But, uh, but I became good at foul shooting, like great at it because when sometimes they'd be doing five on five, I was the 11th guy, so I was just shooting foul shots at the other end of the gym. You know, yes. at practice, like yes. a lot of right. foul shots. But yes. but um but it's it's making me think of this connection. People draw it to jazz, but but like I was thinking when you were just talking, suddenly Pete Maravich flashed into my head and I was thinking about Earl the Pearl and Maravich and and like the individual expression you can have within a team construct. And I wonder if that's something you relate to between the two things at all. Basketball well, and music.
1: I, to- I totally relate to it. Uh, with, with my own, uh, regarding my own music, because I have a band, but in, in and around that band, I'm going to do I'm going to twist it and turn it and mold it into, in my own graven image, you know? <laughs> and, and so, uh, so right. I do that wherever I am and lucky me, I get to do that for a living. It's beautiful. Now you just mentioned, you're talking about basketball and Pete Maravich. Did you know that my son Keith played at LSU?
0: I did, but I didn't. But he didn't play for uh, like uh, Maravich's dad or Jan Van Bredek. He didn't play for like.
1: Oh, no, no, my son. Your son's like. Yeah, like Emily. He's he's like Emily's age. Right. He's exactly Emily's age. Yeah, he plays in Europe now. He's a pro in Paris. He was in Paris this last year. Right. He was in the D League, went to the Mavericks. That's amazing. He had a really good career at LSU, playing in the PMAC, the Maravich Center. No, of course. He does. So when he went there, we started calling him Pistol Key.
0: But oh, that's awesome. But you think about you think about, um, or I was thinking when you were talking about when certain players. Well, you know, I know what you did for Allen Iverson, and, and maybe we'll get into it. But you helped Allen Iverson uh, get out of uh, at, when he was when he was incarcerated when he was yep. young. You helped him get out. But I was thinking about like Larry Brown sitting on Iverson's individuality, as opposed to letting it express itself, and how often those things. Everyone, you know, it's funny because same with the record, right? The producer had an agenda, has an agenda, which is to create a record that's going to be successful in a certain way. A musician might have a different agenda that's riding alongside it, right.
1: right? My agenda is often diametrically opposed from a commercial producer's agenda because I'm looking for expression. I'm looking to to sort of broaden the scope of the of the music uh stylistically and he's looking for something that sounds exactly like what we're hearing on the radio or whatever you whatever the current version of the radio is uh spotify uh so yeah it's uh that's where sort right the producer is larry brown and i'm the bubba chuck as we call yes Alan as Robertson, you
0: call I, iverson yeah I know. I have, a Bubba, I have a Bubba Chuck shirt that I wear sometimes. So, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, it
1: says Chuck? It says Bubba Chuck? Yeah, Bubba Chuck. Chuck.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay. It's great. Yeah. There's a whole series of stuff that got put out by this company called Roots of Fight. That's all Bubba Chuck, and it's all for Iverson. I, I, have a, I could have worn it today, but I would have been embarrassed. I have a sweatsuit, the whole thing. I'm a big Iverson ah. guy. My son ah. has memorized oh. the practice speech. My son knows the practice speech. Oh, yeah. He's yeah, 26, about practice, right. but yeah. he knows yeah. the whole... He knows the whole speech uh, word word for. So word. you've
1: molded him in your own graven image. It sounds sadly, horribly. <laughs> a little bit.
0: But talk a little bit about these twin passions um, of basketball, and music, and and how each pull. I'm, I'm fascinated, and a lot of this podcast is about like moments in people's lives when they could go one way or another, and and okay. and yeah. I'm really interested in that with the kind of inner life of a creative person, and and I also understand why why basketball has such a draw. So can you just talk about the way those things both had hold of you as, as a young person and what led you to how finally music won out?
1: Yeah, it's pretty clear. Uh, I was a jock. Uh, I guess the the, the simple version would, would be to say, I wanted to be Bill Bradley until I wanted to be Elton John. Yeah. Okay. That's the, that's the concise version, uh, expanding on it. I would I would say okay. So I was in ninth. I got really. I was I was sort of in every sport in 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 season. Little jockey kid from age eight nine on. I wake up in the morning and go and get the local paper and 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 memorize the box scores. Memorize Hank Aaron's batting average. And I, I never forget in bold letters. Joe name of signs with the Jets for four hundred thousand dollars. You know that was an astronomical sun. I for some reason I always remembered that when I was say nine ten years old reading that. Okay, so I was into that and uh, but sort of uh, specialized, got more deeply involved in hoops. I was tallish and uh, uh, just it came more naturally to me, and so I was totally into it. I played varsity in ninth grade at a, a, a private school, uh, then. I, I wanted to play basketball with the soul brothers. And so I transferred my 10th grade year back to the public schools here in town, which was at the time, 55, 45, white to black, black, very. Which integral, town in Virginia,
0: 50. which town in Virginia was it? it w- Williamsburg okay. which is where I,
1: where I am. Now. Yeah. And uh, so Williamsburg is known as the colonial tourist town. We were the local townies felting uh, tourists with water balloons yes. and You know, getting taken to the cops and all that was—that was was our childhood. But so I was really, uh, so I went to uh, the uh, public school and uh, decided uh, to—I was focused on that, and it was a beautiful experience for me on a social level. So many of my teammates from that era are still my local hanging pals in town. We have a group of five to ten of us get together. We'll go to a local college game with marry or a local high school game. And we'll be seen up at the top of the stands, not watching the game at all, just up there, just laughing our asses off, just having a good time. So there's that. So, but okay, my junior year, I was playing in the Peninsula district, same district where that, uh, that Chuck played in uh, and Michael Vick. Uh, great, great uh, hood Hampton Newport news scene. And uh, so so I was, but I was doing well. I was having a good junior year, but I had discovered the piano before that. Ah, uh, Yeah. Uh, right before that, I was a late starter. My brother turned, my older brother had gone to New England prep school, Connecticut, Greenwich, Connecticut, and came home. It sounds crazy to think that Elton John was once sort of underground. He had, he'd already had one big hit, but at least to me, he, he was not someone I knew a lot about. My brother played me Tumblebee Connection, oh, yeah. a song called Amarina, I know. and yeah. it just turned me out. I just loved, I wanted to play piano. And then I, he turned me on to Joe Cocker, Mad Dogs Englishman with Joe, uh, Leon Russell, Chris Stane, the great piano on those records. And I wanted to get into that. I'd played guitar, just like every white, white kid in America. You wanted when the Beatles came out, you wanted to play guitar. And so I did that, but then I got, so I got really involved in it. My junior year is really into the hoops, but really into uh, piano, starting to get into piano. And but toward, toward the end of the, my junior year, it was a tough situation, and we were in the in the in the district tournament, and we're playing. We're the eight seed playing the one seed, and we almost beat them. The coach made me the point guard that game because he thought I was getting frozen out, so he uh-huh. made me the point guard. I played point, and we had them all the way to the end. We lost to the end, and some, uh, some sort of unfortunate. Uh, uh, argument broke out between some of my teammates and me. Ah. And I sat in the locker room at Hampton Coliseum where the Virginia Squires used to play. I sat in the locker room going, you know what, fuck this. Really? Uh, this is not this is not fun anymore. I, I, this other thing is really fun and I'm totally consumed by it. And I didn't pick up a ball. I picked up a ball one day between my juniors. After being so consumed with it, I picked up a ball one day between my junior and senior year. And the incoming coach, a new coach, came in and had the the meeting for the next – my senior season. And he's talking about – because I had a really good junior year. He's he's coming in there. I went to the meeting. He said, oh, well, Hornsby might be the best rebounding guard in the state. But if we don't do this – Hornsby might be this and this Ah. and this. But if we don't do – and I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, sir, you have no idea – you're talking about a guy who doesn't exist anymore. Oh, that's awesome. And I, w- I went home that day. My younger brother was, was transferring also from the... John, family.
0: Emily's dad, I'm John. Sorry. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yes. yes. John, it's not Emily's dad, John Hornsby. He came to that meeting, the new coach meeting, came over to our high school, James Blair High School. And he and I went out. I said, hey, man, let's, you want to go out and shoot some? Because I felt like, I felt a little guilty. This guy just blowing me up and I can't couldn't care less. So... I played my senior year. I tried, but I, I wasn't. Uh, it took me to the end of the year to be. To find to your. Get, get back to the level where I had been in my junior year. So so that's the story. It's sitting there at Hampton Coliseum in the locker room going, you know what? Uh, no. You just,
0: so many uh, things you just I'm, said triggered things for me, man. Like, because, first of all, Virginia Squires, ABA, for people who are like the ABA <laughs> days. And uh, it's endlessly fascinating because I'm. I don't know, probably like 11 years younger than you or 12 years younger than you. So I didn't quite, I, they were, go- the ABA, because of the way they played, they were like gods to me. You know what I mean? The, the way they could jump and the, the ball, it was just incredible. All you wanted, I wanted an ABA ball so badly. Like I just wanted an yeah. ABA ball, um, yeah. W- yeah. which for people right. who now, that's the money balls, the ABA, the one that in the Oscar yeah. game is that, right. but also my junior year. This is part of what happened to me in basketball. It's funny, you don't think that like junior year of high school matters till your long term life. So I don't make varsity ninth and 10th, but junior year I try out and I make varsity, but then I get the opportunity to direct a play. One kid a year got to direct a play, but if you said yes, they picked me. But if you said yes, you weren't allowed to play the sport. Sports, right. And I remember, sat down with the coach who I loved, a guy named Albie Schwartz, who was a a great college player. He played D1, a very great college player. And he said, well, there's no guarantee. I understand why you want to go direct to play. And, you know, you're going to play a little this year. You won't be star on the team, but you'll play a little. But he said, if you don't play junior year, it's really hard for me to give you a role senior year. You're not that good, and I'm going to have to develop the guys coming up behind you. So you're taking a chance to never play varsity. And I know how much basketball means to you, but I'm not guaranteeing you that I'm going to hold your spot. Yeah. And I, yeah. I went and directed the play anyway, because I had to go direct the play. Uh, and so when, when senior year came you around. You needed to
1: do that more than you needed to to be on the team. You I did. Something to...
0: made me do it. I didn't even know then I had this ambition to do this with my life at all. Bruce, I didn't know, but the opportunity presented itself and I had to go do it. And, and, uh, and so senior year, I remember he, he sat me down and he said, all right, I really want you on the team for a bunch of different reasons. Like you're good on the bus rides. You're good for the thing. There's lots of reasons, but you have to know you're not. Cause like I said, I can't guarantee playing time. And I was like, I'll do it. Cause I want to have done it too. It's amazing. The times that this decision led obviously in some way to what I do now as yours did. But you kind of,
1: it, it, it you kind of got your way in the sense that you were able to direct the play and you still got to play the next year. Uh, and, and that's, so that's pretty good. You kind of got both.
0: Yeah. I mean, I got to play, I got in a bunch of games, but I didn't contribute. You know, I didn't, I wasn't a real contributor. You, you were the the offense ran through you, your junior year, obviously. Uh,
1: n- no, no, I, I, I was called the trash man because I, I, a lot of my passes came from missed shots from teammates that I would, uh, you know, you just, were like uh,
0: you were like Dan Issel. You were like with teeth. You were like Dan Issel with teeth.
1: Something like that. Yes, maybe so. <laughs> so D- Dave DeBuscher is what That's who a was. great. All
0: right, that's fine. Just staying with your, your childhood a little bit because I haven't heard you talk much, much about, about this, but you were raised a Christian scientist and I I you know some musicians, James Hetfield, has obviously—I don't know if you know—James Hetfield yeah. was raised as. Uh, I know he was
1: a CS guy, yeah.
0: And and has written his songs really are in reaction to that, and I'm just wondering: yeah. Did it uh, uh, was that an, an influence that stayed with you in your life, and is it an important is it an important part of your life? Did it help form you as an artist? Do you think?
1: I don't know about that, but I've I've, I've gone like a lot of people i have kind of gone in and out of it. Uh, i just distanced myself. Uh, look, it's a it, it's a high bar in Christian science uh, yes. that is set, and it's it's uh, <laughs> it's clearly not for everybody. Uh, not don't need to get into this too much, but it's uh, it's something that has I feel has helped me in my life. And, and my older brother uh, Bobby Hornsby, he feels the same way. It's not like we go to church. Or, are devout and read science and health with key to the scriptures by Mary Baker Eddy. At least not right. you do that. But, but there's something about it that inform has informed our life for the good. We think, uh, I, or I'll just speak for myself. I think that my mom, uh, Lois Hornsby, was a practitioner, yes. so she was deeply involved, and so it was a big part of our childhood and sort of on a social level. It was great for us. We had, uh, my, my mom was the campus uh, liaison for Christian science and uh, the Christian science organization. So in our house from early childhood on up through college, we had local college kids who were sort of our de facto big brothers and sisters always over at our house. So this broadened our horizons. I'm still in touch with a lot of those people who were a good, maybe eight to 10 years older than, than I, at the time, but uh, that was kind of special. And my mom was always reaching out in the community. So consequently, we would have, uh, okay, there's, there's Eastern State and Western State, the two mental hospitals in Virginia and Eastern State was in, is it still in Williamsburg and was then. We had Eastern State patients coming over to our house all the time. They would just come and knock on the door at midnight. Really? So yeah, so it was wide open, but in sort of in a kind of a beautiful way, because my mom was trying to help all comers. And And, so so that's how did
0: that how did that intersect with? So I know a bit about Bill Evans. I've long thought about um, making like a movie about him because his life was so fascinating. His end was so tragic. The musicians he was around were so incredible. The trio was a very special thing, uh, you know, yeah. and and the fact that he played with Miles and, and, and Coltrane, and all that stuff. So I know a little about him. But so, which is to say, you're someone raised and steeped in, in, steep, in, in, in a, a faith that is uh, the most abstemious of any faith. And suddenly... Some of your heroes become people like heroin addicts. You say Did
1: you say abstemious? I did. Okay. I said abstemious. I, I tried
0: okay. to. I tried to say abstemius, uh, to the best of my ability. But but you know then then a hero becomes someone who's a, a beautiful musician whose works informed by grappling with his heroin
1: addiction. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, so true. So
0: how did how did Bruce Hornsby's head wrap itself around? Hey, I love Jerry Garcia. But I'm somebody raised and steeped in this idea of living without any uh, sort of uh, AIDS that come from, you know, any kind of chemical substances.
1: Well, that's exactly how it worked when I. okay, so. uh, In September 1990. uh, Events gradually coalesced very sad sadly and in, in my way happily uh we started okay real quickly we, we the, the great the dead asked me to open for them our band the range opened for them in 87 for two gigs in Monterey 88 we did two or three more one time at the garden for a rainforest benefit uh 89 a couple of stadium gigs in nc state louisville and then i would it gradually grew and i was i would sit in with the band I, after we opened for them and then I'd go and sit in with them when I wasn't open for amazing. them. And I see a plate on the record that Don Gaiman produced for yeah, me amazing. out of town. It just grew and grew and grew until sadly I Brent Midland died and right. they asked me to join them. Well, as I told them, if you'd caught me a few years ago, I'd have been I'd have said right, yes, I'd, I'd have been your guy. Uh, but this thing I've got going is going along pretty well. And but I so I can't just leave that. But I will, if you need me to, I'll help you through a, a, a time uh transition time for the new guy vince wellnick because he wasn't quite as versed in the dead music as i was i played in my big brother bobby hornsby's grateful dead cover bands band in college so i was little brucey hornsby on the fender roads singing jack straw and sugar magnolia etc so so uh so then i so i joined them so to sort of played about 100 shows with him but one of the first thing i said to Garcia, to Garcia, who was kind of my closest guy uh, in the band, he's the guy who really, he came out to our gig and said, can you, will you do this and calls me and all this. Uh, I said, look, if you guys dose me, I'm out.
0: <laughs> right?
1: Oh, you did? If you dose <laughs> me, I'm out. Yeah. I, I, you do, yeah. I, I see Bear lurking around. I oh, see Owsley Stanley, the, the, the amazing, famous Yes, Owsley's Alisley. ass, yeah, of he's, course. He's, he's cruising around selling his jewelry. Backstage and and out in front, so I know what's going on, maybe a little bit. So yeah, if you dose me, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not. So it's just I wasn't interested in it. It's I guess it's again the way that I was brought up, and it, it had an effect on me. And I, uh, look, through the years, I I've promised my band guys that once a year or once every two years, I'll just get hammered with them.
0: That's great. You know? Yes. <laughs>
1: Because I'm I'm a or maybe a little burnmeister action. Yeah, sure. I, I, they like it because I'm a I'm a real happy, positive drunk or you know, yes. imbiber. I, when I'm in my cups, I'm basically the guy who goes, you know what? You guys are you're yes. awesome. You're <laughs> amazing. So you, you're just That's you're just great you know? So so they like it when I get that way. So yeah, but what's But mostly i I'm not interested. I'm not uh, not a fan. Oh,
0: this is great, man! It's so fun. We're having a conversation very much like uh, uh, you talked about when you go in and get to play a, a date, and you're just not doing the the, the by rote interview thing because everything you're saying is making me want to go off on these trains, and I'm just going to do it because it's more fun oh, to having Absolutely. this. It's more fun having this approach. We'll get to talking about Flicked your new album, which I I listened to is great. Yeah. I, but I I I, I because um, I'm a Dylan. Dylan's the number one thing from for me i i'm I'm not going through his garbage, but I've read every i'm real deep and he talks about yeah. um how the dead how playing with the dead free gave him a certain freedom later to approach doing his thing differently that something about the experience allowed him. To find a new way talking to to sing his songs where he didn't feel imprisoned, yep. where he didn't feel imprisoned by them anymore, and I'm wondering if that well, makes so- sense to you. Does it make sense to you?
1: Well, it, it makes total sense, and I've never heard him say that, but but it makes total sense because I cite Bob when people ask me about my live approach, and I I, I cite Bob as as someone who's in a similar way uh, interested in in his, in his songs, his music evolving and changing and being different, being uh, dealing with spontaneity in the moment and creating something new. Uh, and so he saw, okay. So I wouldn't, I'm not at all surprised to hear that uh, him hanging his time with the dead, uh, influenced him in that way, because I, I've sat in with him. I sat in with him on a gig and I've been to his gigs and, and, uh, he was doing End of the Innocence for a little while in the early 2000s. I Amazing. Just love well, it. Yeah. It I love it. Yes, crushed me. I'm going to
0: ask you about End, End of Bet- the Innocence because that's one of my, all right, I'll do it now. So End of the Innocence is one of my favorite records of all time. Like even when people would laugh at Henley, the period of time when people were laughing at Henley, I was like, you know, well, what
1: were they laughing at you know well, the eagles
0: people laugh you know there was a period of time when oh. i think around the Combe brothers movie when uh everyone decided the eagles sucked you know because the Combe brothers in big lebowski kind of oh. say it okay okay, okay. But, okay, okay. Uh-huh. but but you know a period of time where they came to represent this cal- i mean you know there was a moment where they represented in the culture like the soullessness of a certain kind of california sound but but okay. to me this tired old man that we elected Kings uh, king and and beating plowshares into, into swords. You know, like like for me that song and, and it started with this music. I've I've I know Mike Campbell just a teeny tiny bit. I had him on the podcast, and he told me about the experience of how uh Boys of Summer came to be. And yeah. I'm wondering, I know you've talked about this, but I I'm I'm really interested from you in like a couple of things one why didn't you take that riff yourself Two, like when don had that how did that so there's a fame i don't know did mike campbell ever tell you how he heard boys of summer that 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 don called him from the car and just started singing along to his track and 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 uh
1: so so mike had given him this track mike gave him a track called him
0: yeah. Mike gave him a track and then Don was like, I don't know what I can do with it, but I think, and then by the time Mike got home, Henley called him from a car and sang him, Henley started driving on the PCH, like the song, and just sang him the song, you know?
1: Well, see, that's so amazing. This is another, st- another thing like the Dylan Dead thing. I've never heard that, but it's, my my story is not at all dissimilar. Tell me what happened uh, with you. Tell me what uh, happened. Okay, so, so the story goes that, um, out of the blue after my first record, I started getting calls from people and I mostly said no, but I got this call from Don Henley and, and, and I had missed, i really missed the Eagles thing because oh. when the Eagles were big, I knew of them, of course, but I was more into train miles, Herbie, Chick McCoy, Keith. Yeah. But Keith Jarrett. You mean Kelly, Keith J- you know. Keith
0: Jarrett? Is that what you mean by Keith? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah, McCoy, Herbie, Chick, and Keith are the four one named titans of modern jazz piano that have never been supplanted, although Got they're, it. of course, killers. Brad yes. Meldow, many great ones. But uh, so I was into that deeply in the 70s and missed the Eagles. But I've been in the 80s, I really liked Dirty Laundry. I really loved uh, Boys of Summer and Sunset Grill. And so I got a call from him and I went, well, hell yeah, I'm, I, I love what you're doing. Yes. And so, yeah, so, so uh, he came over to my house. Uh, he lived top of Mulholland uh, uh, for a long time, had his own hill. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, so he comes over to my little square, 1200 square foot house in, in Van Nuys, uh, Balboa and Van Owen. And uh, it's and he, he comes in and. My wife's teaching school, and oh no, she she was a graphic designer at the time in Pasadena. So he comes over to my place, and I have a little upright piano right inside the door. And so we're fooling around with some ideas. He has some. He's sitting right next to me. I'm on the piano, and we're doing this. All of a sudden, the uh, the door. There's a knock on the door. This is a funny little aside. Oh no, I'm so into so this. I I keep going. Yeah, it's
0: great. Picturing you guys uh, there. I, yeah, there's a knock on the yeah, door. Yeah.
1: So I open the door. And uh, or I think Henley opens the door because he's right at the door, so he opens the door. FedEx guy, have a little package here for Bruce Hornsby, signed. So I signed it. It's RCA Records. So I had just here. I opened it up and said, and it was my first real serious royalty check from the first album. And I said, Oh my God, Don, this is crazy. I've just got this. And he says to me, Welcome to the club. Oh, that's great. <laughs> It was just a funny little little bit in there. Well, that's so, so heavy part- that you were with
0: Henley when that happened. I mean, that's a heavy moment.
1: Yeah, it was just, just right. It was serendipitous in that way. It's so funny. So so at but the end of it, we felt like, well, we I don't know if we've coming up or coming up with anything that great together. I said, Well, look, there's this track, there's this piece of music that I have. And I don't really like the lyrics I'm coming up with for this song. And so if you'd like, I'll just go in the studio in the next week and record this little piece <laughs> with my standard at the time, standard formula, Lynn drum machine, yes, yes. Synth, Oberheim bass, piano, and a little string pad. You know, it a, it a, All those records were the same of mine, the way it is every little kiss. Yeah, I remember late. it. Yeah, of course. That, all, yeah, it was all the same kind of frankly boneheaded production that's we just that could never really beat I them mean, with it, the band. It worked.
0: It totally worked. It still works. I listen, yeah, I rode my bike not, this morning. That. I rode my bike this morning and I listened to ten of those songs and they still slab, man. But okay. go ahead. I know well, they still so, slab.
1: I I'm don't feel that way. About I know them. but anyway I know. Uh, so, so so I I'm really proud of the songs. I'm just not a big fan of, of the, the arrangements. I know. Time. I understand. It, 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 it's just it's straight. The Lindrum on
0: the backbeat—that straight Lindrum on the backbeat, backbeat thing—annoys you. I understand why. Yes, I know. Well, it, yeah. it's the That's stiffness the, of it, but you still swing it, on the it, piano. Our, you can still soul. swing okay, the so piano. Anyway, it, it's fine. So it, go ahead.
1: He comes over. He comes over. He comes over. I said, "Okay, come on over. I got this track." So he come, came over and put it on. And he just went, wow, I got chills thinking about it. He just went, oh, mm -hmm, I think I can do something with this. So it was a little bit different from Mike Campbell's, but, but uh, now he, and this is a few years after boys of summer. Yes. I I, I always told this story when I uh, saying that Henley had one of the early cell phones, but I guess he must've had it a couple of years before uh, during the Campbell boys of summer era because he called Mike. So he, but this is back when, and you may even remember this if you know much about the Valley of the '80s, uh, near Balboa Park, there was a f- farm. There was a there, there was agriculture. There were crops being grown on either side of Balboa, and so Don's passing, uh, passing this farm, he, he calls me up. I guess got chills again thinking about it. He calls me up and says, "Oh man, this stuff is coming to me fast and furious. I'm heading over to my house. I'm just past these cornfields and." And so the, the cornfields, I think, made it into the song. Oh, they do, of course, it, it, they uh, do.
0: Yeah, the plowshares it, it, and everything. Yeah, of course.
1: Exactly. In the it, video, like, I mean, he's out so, in
0: fields. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so, so he it it came to him really quickly, just like it sounds like it did uh, on Boys of Summer. And so, yeah, we were in the studio, and he see he he wrote to that. He made me play. I had just played it once. I had just little improvised thing. The, the standard. And then I would just play little fills here and there. He knew the, the little demo I gave him so well because he'd written to it. He had most of it done, but then he kept grinding grinding on it for the next several months. So he made me play everything just like oh, oh no, exactly no, not, like the demo. No, bad, no, bad, no. no, it's no, you just went. No, bad, no. Not- <laughs> really that's yeah please do it that way you know so did you have so, a, a yeah, sense
0: was, did you know i've always wondered this kind of thing uh even when i started this it was around this kind of question i always wonder this about people like um when you heard the finished version of end of the summer for the first time you know and end of the innocence for the first time did you know did some part of you know oh this is the kind of song People will be talking about 30 years later. Could you tell it was one of oh, those? I,
1: no, I don't have a sense of that because, uh, to be honest, and you may know the story, uh, uh, and uh, the way it is was thought of as a B-side. By that's RCA incredible
0: Records. to me. I yeah, mean,
1: that, uh, well, but think about it. think about it. it's a song about racism with not one but two improvised piano solos. I mean, that's not. Well, there's no, that's not the formula at all. So it was a total fluke. It broke in England, then in Holland, then throughout Europe and throughout the rest of the world, and then the powers that be at RCA went, well, I guess it's not a B-side. You know,
0: <laughs> so, you know Maggie Mae was a B-side, because my dad had yeah, well, a, my dad had the I, A-side. My dad had the A-side, which was Reason to Believe, the Tim Harden song.
1: Uh, love Reason to Believe, yes. And that was the uh,
0: A-side, and Maggie Mae was the B-side, and, and then they flipped it. So that happened uh, then.
1: I, I know that to be true. I've often cited that when talking about this, saying this is not Un, you know, I mean unexpected. it's rare it's, it, it's but I, that was a yeah. uh,
0: for yeah but I I know my dad used to always tell that story right. because for him he was very young and that was his one of his first copyrights and you know working with Tim Harden and and, and I remember for him it was like he had this chance but then it ended up being fine because back then records so albums it was great to be on the album you know uh I
1: to I, I consider that reason to believe was also a hit somehow in, in my memory of that That reason it seemed I mean, like it probably they might have put it out on its own, anyway. Oh, so, I'm uh,
0: sure that's true. But so, so yeah. When, when, I, I all right. I have a couple questions about the way it is. Which is, do you think that the way you were raised, your mom, and all that stuff, because you have a clear social justice conscience. It's clear, like not just from the lyrics of that song, but the Iverson story, where you didn't have to involve yourself in in helping this kid. And you know, I had already started working with Tracy Chapman in in 93, 1985 is when I first saw Tracy and she played Yes you
1: signed her right didn't you And didn't she you when I or- was in college
0: yes and and yeah. she had talking about a revolution and I remember hearing way it is and you know um standing in line uh yeah. Marking yeah. time yeah. W- 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 yeah. you know uh, waiting, for the, waiting for the welfare line job. and and her first line of her song is standing in the welfare line and I remember hearing way it is and loving it and then also being and it was so weird because people were all telling us oh nobody's going to care about this kind of music and i had these twin thoughts when i heard your song the first one was uh this is going to make it so much easier and the second one was oh now nobody's going to care because he did it first uh you know i had both thoughts were in my head of course well they were pretty
1: close uh on a timeline right what was what, what, she come to, out, she had written it before
0: yeah she had written it though like she'd written revolution like in 85 or 84 or so, earlier and the album her album didn't come out till 88 and you think i think your album came out in 86 uh
1: yes that's right
0: but uh yeah. but i i will say do you but think you know this song but yes. do you think you, that social justice thing where did that come from, your awareness and, 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 and fusing that into your work? Because people weren't really doing that in the 80s. They were doing that in the 60s. But in the 80s, there were very few commercial artists who were doing that. And, and, and not just that song. Like, many of your songs have themes that deal with deep, important kind of issues back then. And, um, and I'm wondering if you think part of it had to do with the way you were, you were raised.
1: I think that's probably true. I've never tried to really explicate it, but I think that's got to be true. I also think that my time in the public school system uh, helped me with uh, an empathetic level to dealing with the race issue. Because, again, being the only white dude on the hoops team, you know, you get a full dose. I actually have hilarious stories of white boy in two worlds very sure, funny shit but 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 also i think i was trying to go light with it because that's my typical move but uh, but i think it, to be serious about it yes i think all of that the sum total of my past uh here's another version another another uh area When when i was a little kid as i said i, I played guitar a little bit and uh there was this group that came through called Up With People. Of course, it's it's, it's widely derided now, you know, it's just being this pure hokum and and, and and sort of patriotic mindlessness. But my mom got really into it. And so she had Bobby and Bruce Hornsby being playing in the band, Little Brucey on guitar and Bobby Hornsby playing bass for Up With People. But the, but the beautiful part about Up With People on a local level and in the National Cast, I'm sure it was the same, it was very integrated and so we had great friends and i ended up there's a guy named joe lee who grew up in grove out here and he uh i used to go to his house he had a great band called the pace center soul band and again only white dude in the house we played fort Eustis officers club and i'd go sit in with them and go in the studio so all these seminal youth uh, experiences of my youth uh, had to have, to, had to have and, and, and you know, made their mark on my on That my makes conscience. sense.
0: I mean, and connected to that, you know, um, you and your brother John, Emily's dad, wrote a number of your most famous songs together. And deep, important songs, like these socially conscious, you know, Valley Road, I mean, all these songs that were really about something, many of them were written with your brother in the early days. Yeah. And, uh-huh. and, and, and he left the sort of uh, he
1: left the songwriting game. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he left the he
0: he he left commercial life in a way for to dive back into a religious life. Uh That's right. And and he was it seems to me from the outside, you know, because I'm someone like you. I read album credits real closely that, uh, I, in fact, I couldn't believe it after I had hired Emily, Dave, and I, and she was working with me when I connected the whole thing. I was like, "That's your dad? I, that's your uncle?" I couldn't believe it. But um, <laughs> but. Uh, was it in a hard adjustment When, when he left and, and cast off All of this stuff of the material world To go be a, yeah. a person In a different religion than the one you were raised in and, yes. Or different sect of it yeah, a, yeah. Right, when, when he left To go do that it, Were you creatively unmoored for a moment Did you have to find, how did that Or, or because the, 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 I will say the songs you wrote with him were one kind of thing And the other stuff is a kind of A different thing
1: yeah, well, I hear you saying that, but I'm not sure it's quite true. Uh, uh, for instance, and so the, the, the short answer is not at all. I was not unmoored. And, he, and just to be very specific about it. So I wrote Way It Is myself. I know, myself. I know. I wrote Every Little Kiss by myself. Valley Road is mostly me. He wrote the verses, though. And they're, they're, uh, Madeline Rain, he wrote. Uh, uh, lost, so, And then, then from then on. I, and and so Jacob's Ladder is
0: the two of you, right?
1: Oh, Jacob Flatter is absolutely collaborative. Yeah, that's, a, yeah, he's. A I mean, big, those are big, big some of, of the,
0: I, I just, yeah. I was biking here and I was like, well, half of yeah. these songs that are the, you know, those songs were co- co-written yeah, with John.
1: That's exactly right. That's exa- a good number, about half of them. So I didn't, look, I knew I was, I thought I would miss him, but it was okay. I really didn't, didn't, uh, right look back at all. Yeah. I was, I was, I realized, I, I just felt he was just burnt out on it. This actually happened before he had his, I guess what you'd call his ep- epiphanic moment. His, you know? his awakening, th- yeah. Because th- th- that was a little later. This was early 90s. Uh, he wrote five of the nine songs on the, on the first record. I think five of nine on the second record, then five out of 11, then two out of Ten, Right. And then that was it. And, but that was still, yeah. Harbor lights his last record. He wrote a couple of songs on that night. That's 93. So it was a few years after that, that he ended up just sort of turning his back on t- on the sort of things that we're doing right now. <laughs>
0: yes, on the material, like on the material world. So you were able to Take sort out. of have peace with that as an artist. It wasn't a, because I, you know, I, I uh, collaborate so closely with my lifelong best friend and creative partner. And, and, and yet we've both, both written plenty of stuff on our own, but, but the work we do together is kind of like the thing that we do. But I, I guess for, for you, you were able to move through that and have these other creative partnerships.
1: Oh, well, it was totally fine. And I, I always left the door open to him. I've said, look, I'm, I'm, you you're, you do a great job with this I, I'm always open to it So that was always uh, Available but he Was never he just was in a different Different place and so I then and I've started writing With more people I've started writing with Robbie Robertson or yeah. Shaka Khan I, you know, All this stuff was coming to me and so Yes it, 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 <laughs> Lucky me you know I mean yeah, Nothing
0: wrong I, with any of that I, I, All right, last couple of questions. Uh, another person that we both have a, a, such a, an affection for, uh, though I only coached Little League with him, I've never worked with him, but we were co- coaches of Little League together is Spike Lee. And uh, oh. talk a little yeah, a creative hero of mine. How does your creative relationship with him work? Because you've worked together a number of times, it seems to me.
1: We've worked together for 30 years. Uh, not in the last year and a half, two years, we, but, but the last, okay, so... I met him in 92. Well, you don't need to, you don't need to know the, uh, the history of it. Uh, uh, okay. We met in 92. He asked me to write a song for him. Shaka Khan and I wrote a song for his Clockers movie called Love Me Still And 95. And then he would ask me here and there to do something, write another end title song for another movie, Bamboozled. Little little incidental music here and there. But then in 08, he asked me to, and there's a sports provenance here. He asked me to score an ESPN documentary he was making on Kobe Bryant named, uh, called Kobe Doing Work. Yes. I guess it was sort of my audition. Terrence Blanchard has been his longtime A-team guy. I guess I became kind of his B-team guy. I scored a bunch of stuff that no one would ever see. He's really out there, indie, artsy movies like Red Hook Summer, or uh, I mean, Sweet Blood. I know all the I
0: know uh, all of the movies and Bamboozled, I just referenced the other day. I Saving Glover. Oh, I saw I the premiere that. of Bamboozled. So like, yeah, I remember all that fantastic. stuff. Yeah,
1: fantastic. So, yeah. Uh, so for the next eleven years, I wrote, uh, I I scored for him six different uh, uh, di- different uh, pieces, including a score for a movie he made, accompanying the NBA Two K Sixteen. Amazing. video game that, you know, i haven't to seen that.
0: that one that's the one i haven't seen i guess
1: yeah it's so, what's anyway, that process like for you is uh,
0: it is a collaborative process
1: oh totally uh yeah we have we've we have been great friends for years i've actually been to nick's games, sitting courtside with him oh, that's great reggie miller and spike yelling at each other the whole time uh, oh yeah but look, look like reggie was looking at yelling at me because i'm right next to him uh, but the, yeah, it, it's, it was very natural for us. We've known each other for so long and he just likes what I do. So it got to the point where he just would say to me, Oh, Hey, here's the first season of Netflix. Uh, she's got to have it. Yes. Uh, just here's here's a script, just write stuff. Oh, that's awesome. So I, I wrote, I would write about 40 pieces of music and he would just put them in and Terrence Blanchard said to me one time we were talking uh, Terrence says, well, does he ever use your cues in a way that seems emotionally <laughs> wrong emotionally mostly incorrect? Like the wrong, it, 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 the, the music doesn't go with it with the scene. And I said to Terrence, yeah, I, that happens. That's you know, funny. Don't you, the, the, don't you worry about people who are interested in having you score for them? Uh, so hearing this and going, well, boy, I don't think he's the right guy because it's inappropriate music. I said, "Well, Terrence, you mistake me for being to, uh, uh, being someone who's trying to do this. I'm like Tom Hagen of The Godfather. I have one one client. That's awesome. Spike Lee. That's and awesome. So that's that's it for me. Uh, so right. So that's been a great collaborative. Uh, and and to, to move real quickly to the latest records. That yes. They are they are informed by so much by music I wrote for Spike. So yes. you had a good." Unwitting segue there. Well, I had read
0: Brian, I might have read that fact actually, but uh, uh, that's great. And and the new one has Ezra Koenig, who I'm, I'm uh, I've had on the podcast. Ezra, he's uh, someone I think is a, a terrific, uh, just an incredible artist. And I know he's on the new record. So people yes, who yes. love Vampire Weekend and are, are 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 into that should listen. My last question, Flicked, it is the new album. It's re- I listened to it last yes. night. This morning was the old music, but last night I listened to the album and really dug it, man. Uh, it's so different from the early stuff but it's still a complete vibe and it's still you and I really I'm, dig I'm it.
1: moving on I don't stand still Daniel Hine also does a great duet with me on a song called Days Ahead that's, she's
0: fantastic uh, uh,
1: that's a highlight my that's last question
0: group. last question where does Kareem fit all time all time best players where do you have Kareem
1: well you have you're talking to the wrong guy I, I don't really I don't care about who the best player is I'll, I'll, I'll answer your question but it's it's something I really couldn't give two shits about, really. It's like, you know, the best player. Uh, I, they're, they're great. You're talking about great and greater. I mean, it's, it's innate. It's, it's not like track where you are your The top.
0: reason I talk about Kareem yeah. is because I don't think that people younger than me understand, like I'm, I, I don't think they understand necessarily why he's so important. I, culturally they might, but the they accept that he's culturally so important, But I always want to be like, go watch some game film because you never saw anything like what he was able to do. And it would apply today.
1: Yeah, that's right. He had a a 15 to 18 foot sky hook, you know, unstoppable. You couldn't, you couldn't block it. I, on the other hand, had what I call a land hook, but that's another story. Yours is
0: more like Bill Cartwright. Uh, You just a little, a little Bill Cartwright flick at the hoop, maybe. No,
1: not, not close to as good as him. (laughs) Uh, Uh, But Kareem was a transcendent offensive player. I mean, obviously, they they changed the freaking rules for him. I mean, uh, against him. They did. No dunking for several years. You you go up and just put the ball over the rack. It was just terrible. So, yeah, look, he's He's got to be in the conversation. I'm not going to so like make those.
0: you. I know I'm not going to make you enumerate it now that you've made it clear you don't want to enumerate it, Bruce. Uh, well, are you playing? Uh, are you playing a series of gigs over the next year? Can people come to you? Do you have a website that people can, if they want to find out oh, what yeah, you're doing yeah. and where you're playing?
1: Yeah, we're playing playing uh, Brooklyn Bowl in the next sometime this month. Maybe in the next couple of weeks, uh, we start in Indiana. Have a couple of uh, killer basketball. Uh, uh, iconic coaches coming to see our games and our our gig in Indianapolis and Chicago. And uh, so that'll be great fun to hook up with some people that I know only through my son. That's how I know them, not through my music. They're fans of Keith Hornsby named for Keith Jarrett. Yes. And uh, so anyway, so yes, uh, we're playing all around the country for uh, in, in June and three weeks in August more Rocky Dogs well
0: go see Bruce Hornsby play uh, live folks go to his website and check it out Uh, when Bruce when you finally binge Billions to see your niece's work you will see coach John Calipari make a great appearance on the show so there's there's (laughs) basketball references Throughout. Hey man, this was super fun talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: It went by really fast.
0: Yeah, take care of yourself, man. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.